Last week, we talked about the pervasive nature of sin in our lives and in our world, and we talked about the hope we have in Christ in dealing with our sin. Today, we're, looking, we're going to be looking at one passage of Genesis, and we're going to be continuing to think about sin a little bit. Open up your Bibles to Genesis or tap on your device to Genesis or whatever it takes for you to get to Genesis. Meet me there, okay? We're going to be there, and we're going to be talking about that. And we're not going to be in this passage very long. And what I want to start with right now, and you can track with me if you want to or if you just want to listen, because I'm going to do a kind of an overview a, a little bit. And, and so when we talk about sin and we want to just take a look a little bit on Genesis and kind of get familiar with the book again some. You know, Genesis 3, that's, that's the big deal. Sin enters the world in Genesis 3 through Adam and Eve, and they're not believing God. You know, they believe the serpent. They exerted their will over God's will and thus set all of mankind into a broken state with their heavenly father. In Genesis 4, Cain murders Abel. Again, he's refusing to do things God's way, and he chooses the sacrifice. He chooses to sacrifice his way as opposed to following God's instruction. You keep going, and in Genesis 6, you know, there God has just, he, he grieves mankind, Genesis 6, 5, and he says, every intent, the thoughts of, the, the, thoughts of the people, of their heart, is on evil continually. And then chapter 9, there's Noah's drunkenness and, and his son's sin. And, and then chapter 11, you know, mankind continues to always want to exalt ourselves, don't we? In some form or another. And so in Genesis 11, man comes together and says, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a tower that will make a name for ourselves. And the Tower of Babel is destroyed and man is scattered. In Genesis 12, Abraham is flees to Egypt, and he arrives there, and he lies to Pharaoh. He says, that's not my wife. That's just my sister. Don't, don't think about killing me for her. And so he pushes his wife under the bus, and God deals with him there. Later on, his wife Sarah falters in her faith, and she says, I want a child, and I'm tired of waiting on God. Take this woman, take this Hagar, and, and take her and, and make me a son. And then she despises him and her immediately. So she doubted God's promises as well. You move into chapter 18 and you get into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and their great, just overwhelming sin. You move into chapter 19 and and Lot's daughters, you know, the mother has, has suffered punishment for her sin at Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's daughters, you know, get their father drunk and sleep with him. Again, Abraham lies again about his wife. Again, not believing that God can take care of him and protect him in chapter 20. Chapter 26, the son follows the father's footsteps. And Isaac also lies about his wife. Chapter 27, Rebekah orchestrates her son being able to steal the father's blessing. Chapter 29, Laban. He, he decides to trick and to deceive Jacob into taking his daughters. Chapter 30, the jealousy between Rachel and Leah over one being able to have children and the other not. 
Chapter 34, Simeon and Levi and the revenge of the rape of their sister Dinah. Chapter 37, Jacob's sons, their sin against their brother Joseph. Again, it's a jealousy issue. And they sell him into slavery and go back and tell the dad, ah, man, this animal just came out of nowhere and took him away into the wilderness. We're so sorry that happened. Um, What's for dinner? You know, that's kind of the the attitude, the the degree of, of grief they had. Chapter 38, Judah, he deprives the rightful secession of his son's wives, and then he ends up sleeping with his own daughter-in-law. Chapter 39, Potiphar tries to seduce Joseph. And that's just like the skimming the top of the book. And that's a lot of sin to just get started with, right? And all of that sin in relationship to God is not lost on mankind. From early on, man has struggled with what, what to understand about the relationship between God and the wickedness, the evil that happens on earth. Why does this happen? Who's responsible for this? You see it all the, I mean, you, just, you see it all the time. In 2011, there was a drought at home in Texas. It was the worst drought they had had since the early 50s. They had gone seven years that, that decade. And here we are in 2011, and they hadn't had rain in I don't know how long. They had 71 days over 100 degrees in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. One time they had 40 days straight. Another time they had 20 days straight. It was a dire situation. Crops were dying. I mean, the crops weren't dying. They weren't getting started. Water was drying up, and folks were getting worried. And I got a phone call from a friend and just said, what is God doing? Isn't he responsible for all this? Doesn't he have control over all this? Why is he doing this? And I remember that it was that I just didn't think that I had a very good answer for a really hard question. But that question is not unique to that time frame. That question has been happening just for centuries. What does God think of evil and sin that happens on earth? Who's responsible for that sin? How did it get this way? Why do we have it this way? When will this end? I mean, will it ever end? Will it ever end? Isn't this God's fault that we have this sin on earth? Didn't he, make the, didn't he set this all up so that this is going to happen? So whatever is really happening, God is the author of evil. There are many who would come to that conclusion. Wrongly so. And then is this our fault? Those are just a few of the questions that the, the problem of evil conjures up for anyone at all who watches things happen in the world around us. And even if I were to give you an answer to that question, there would be an alternative answer that someone else would have because it has been being debated from the very beginning. The question of sin, um, the evil, responsibility, that's, it is just, you know, when you look back at the book of of Job, it's a running dialogue in that book of why this is happening to you, Job, and what you need to do about it to, to satisfy God so it won't happen again. And if you go back to read about Job, he has these really great friends. No one wants to be Job's friends, do they? And they sit around him and say, this is your fault. This is all your fault. And this is what you should do to fix it. 
Today, we're not going to try and answer all those, but we are going to look at a few, make a few observations that I think can begin to inform our understanding about God and sin and how we understand it, how we see it, and how we relate to it. First of all, just this, God cannot produce sin. That's just the bottom line. Let's just understand that. Let's make sure we put our hands around that and own that little detail. God cannot produce sin. He is absolutely holy, and in him there is no flaw, there is no blemish, there is no imperfection at all. Psalms 18.30, the passage I read from this morning says, As for God, his way is blameless. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, And for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And then in Isaiah's vision, in chapter 6, verse 3 of, his, of the prophet, he records there, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, let's remind ourselves that holy means apart from sin, set apart. Jesus says in Matthew five forty-eight that your heavenly Father is perfect. And then when God got done, with creation in Genesis 1, 31, he says, all this is good. Everything I've created is good. Matter of fact, I think he even said, very good. So he can't say it's very good if he's created something that is blemished or sinful or broken. God's character, all of its perfections and holiness will not allow him to participate in sin. He can't produce it. He cannot, he cannot do anything that is sin. So let's remember our definition of sin. Anything that does not conform to the character of God. That is our definition of sin. Anything does not conform to the character of God. Our other definition was that you know anything we think, say, or do that does not please God. That's the, the handle we put on it. That's the anything we think, say, or do that does not please God. That is sin. And so when you think about that, he cannot have sin if it violates his character. He just can't do that. The next thing is, he cannot produce sin, nor can he promote sin. The Apostle James wrote, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. In James 1.13, the, the prophet Habakkuk, he wrote, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot, even, you cannot tolerate wrong. And then finally, it says, going back to the story of Job that we referenced a moment ago, God didn't promote the temptation of Job. That was Satan's instigation. Look at Job 1 with me. If you flip back over there, please. Open up your Bibles to Job 1, verse 6 through 12. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And and Satan answered the Lord, said, Roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away evil. And Satan said, you know, basically he says, Job is good because you protect him. You let me have my way with him, and he'll cuss you to your face. Just give me a chance. That was the abridged version, all right? 
he says, you performed a hedge around him, verse 10, and his house and all that he has on every side. You blessed his work of his hands and his possessions have all increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely cuss you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. If you're familiar with the story of Job, you see that Job took, I mean, that Satan took advantage of, the, of that situation. Matter of fact, it's, it's really clear from Scripture that God uses evil. He permits it. He uses the sin and the sin of others to accomplish his purposes. And those purposes are eternal purposes. Think about that. He doesn't promote it. Right? He doesn't produce it. But he permits it. Norm Geisler states it like this. When a parent allows a teenage driver to use the family car, they are permitting the potential for evil. Now, is that an understatement or what? And then he kind of, he turns it down as calamity, all right? When a parent allows the teenage driver to use the car, you're allowing something to happen. But it's necessary to allow the possibility of wrongdoing or accident for the greater good of the adolescent learning responsibility and driving skills. When we, and he goes on, and he, and he writes further, he says, When we choose wrongly and fail, we endure the consequences of our error. God uses our failures to strengthen us and to bring us from immaturity and incompleteness into spiritual adulthood. So think about that. He's relating it to something that all of us can understand. You, you give someone else permission, and when you do that, you open up the opportunity for something to happen. Well, how does God use evil or the evilness or the sin of mankind? How do they become used for eternal purposes? Go to your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50, the very last chapter of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And there you're going to find a verse that you might not have known the address of it, but you've probably said it or referred to it or quoted it or heard it quoted at some time or another. There, Jacob has died. Jacob is the father of the sons, the 12 sons. He's died, and now the brothers are fearing that now that Jacob, now that daddy is gone, Joseph will take revenge for their sinfulness, for their their actions on him. Now, it's painful for friends to abandon us, isn't it? It is bewildering to hear your boss say, you're fired. But when brothers and mothers and sisters and fathers harm you, when it's the immediate family, there is a bone-crushing, heartbreaking pain that is difficult to put in words. And Judah and the brothers understand that. And so they think, now that daddy's gone, Joseph's going to give us what we deserve. And they go before him here in chapter 50. Verse, verse 18, it says, The brothers came and fell down before him, before Joseph, and behold, we are your servants. In other words, like going, look, we'll do anything you want. Just don't. Just don't take it out on us. 
perhaps it's the best they could do to kind of just say, we're really sorry. And Joseph says in verse 19, do not be afraid for I am in God's place. Isn't that interesting statement? I am in God's place. How did he get there? Did he, he filled out an application. It was an online forum. And it said, you know, second in command to Pharaoh to carry us through an, an, a, a terrible drought. Um, can fill out your credentials and submit it to Pharaoh and he'll get back to you. We'll call you. No, not at all. His brothers, once we're talking about, sold him into slavery, lied about his missing, his death to the father. The Midianites, they sold him to an Egyptian lord of some sort, Potiphar, whose wife took a shine to him and she tries to seduce him. But being a righteous man, he um, resists her advances And in her rage and in whatever it is that she was feeling at the time, she accuses him of trying to seduce her. So Potiphar throws Joseph in prison. We don't know how many years he was in prison, but even if it was a week, I'm imagining that an Egyptian prison was not like an American prison. An Egyptian prison was probably something incredibly harsh. So he spends time there, and two people show up in there who who have displeased the Pharaoh, And they have dreams, and so he interprets the dreams for them, and they eventually get out, and he goes, look, when you get out, just remember me. And what do they do? They forget him. Now, if there's anybody who has a reason to be mad at the world, do you think it's this dude? But eventually, he has the opportunity to be before Pharaoh, where God honors all that he's gone through, and God uses that incident to put him in the place he eventually is. I am in God's place. God put me here. And then here's verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Here he is. He goes, what you did to me, you did it out of hatred. You did it out of evil. You had an intention and you got your intention. You got rid of me. And you meant it that way, but God took it and he turned it around and he meant it for good. And so here I am now in this position and there are many people who are alive today because I am here and we have been managing this drought. People are not starving to death because God put me here. What you intended for evil, God used for good. This type of evil that these guys did to the brother is not unheard of. This is not the only instance of this type of horrendous behavior where brothers sell someone to slavery. Just this week, news broke of a family of 13, 12 or 13 children who had been chained and abused by their parents. And sadly, that's not uncommon. We know that that all breaks the heart of God. None of that would make him happy. But God in his sovereignty, in his omnipotence, is not deterred by our sin. Some of us envision him as being like, well, God has a plan, but then all of a sudden, Joseph's brothers sold him in slavery. So God's going, what am I going to do now? Well, who's going to advise me? Who do I go to to get advice on this situation? Because I'm really not sure what to do now, because what I was going to do was this, and now I can't seem to do this. And that's the way we look at so much of life. This is what I was going to do, and now I can't do it. What's going to happen now? This, this is going to prevent good things from happening. This is going to prevent my plans. There has never been, ever, in the course 
of all history in the way that we understand it. There's never been, in the course of God being God, which is all eternity, there's never, ever been a situation where God ran into a circumstance and he goes, wow, I don't know what I'm going to do about this, ever. And so here's Joseph. He's sold into slavery. Here's Joseph, wrongly accused. Here's Joseph in prison. And God's not sitting around going, gosh, I don't know how we're going to break him out because I really need him. Because I have this thing I'm working on. It's called um, Israel. It's called a Messiah. And I've chosen this one guy, Abraham, his seed, all of his, his, all of his descendants. And now we've got a descendant in prison. I'm just unsure of how to handle this. That's never happened with God, ever, ever, ever. Instead, what he does is he takes that stuff and he goes, huh, we're going to work with this. We're going to deal with this. This is not a problem. This is not something that's going to be in the way because what, I am, because what I am going to do is I'm going to demonstrate to you just how sovereign I am. I'm going to demonstrate to you how nothing gets in the way. I'm going to demonstrate to you just in how incredibly powerful I am because I'm going to take what you intended for evil and I'm going to use it for good. I'm going to use it to further my plan. There's nothing you can do to stop me. There have been other times when God used evil for his purposes that he records in, 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 in Scripture. In Jeremiah 27, 6, God describes Nebuchadnezzar as his servant. Now, let's just refresh our memories a little bit. Nebuchadnezzar, the kings and the sons of Israel were brought before him when Nebuchadnezzar invaded. He was the king of Babylon, and he invaded Israel. And when the kings and his sons were brought before him. He murdered all the children in front of him, and then he, he tore the eyes out of the king, so the last thing he remembered seeing was the death of his own children. And then he drug him off into captivity. And then he destroyed Jerusalem, and he took all the vessels of the temple into his own houses of worship, into his own palace. That is the man that God says is my servant. Why? How? Here he is, if you can imagine the Middle East there, and he has a nation that for hundreds of years he's been saying, from the very beginning of Moses and Joshua, he says, if you do right, I will bless you. If you do wrong, I will curse you and I'll punish you. Here is Israel and Judah, and they have God of history, of idolatry, a history of not worshiping God, of not following after him, of not following his rules. At one time, there's even the story of the one king who who finds the scrolls and goes, what is this? Where has this been my whole life? And he stumbles across God's law, and he starts reading it, and he goes, he has a personal revival in his life. That's how far removed the nation had, had been from God's law. And he says, I will punish you. If you do not obey, and you're like going, well, how do you punish a nation? Well, this is what I'm going to do. There's this other dude. He's a few hundred miles from you. He's a really bad dude. He's going to come, and he's going to carry you into captivity. And when you wonder why this is happening, remember what I told you. If you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. You'll suffer the consequences. So as you're being dragged off 
into Babylon, just remember, this is what I told you was going to happen. So did anyone in Israel think, you know, God's going to raise up a really wicked king and he's going to use that very guy to discipline us and to chastise us and to, to confirm that prophecy? No. No, I don't think so at all. But that's exactly what God did. At the same time, he does the same thing with Cyrus the Great in Isaiah 44, 28. And as there, he says about Cyrus the Great, he is my servant, my anointed. This is another pagan worshiping king. This is not a godly guy. This is not a guy who's like, you know, has the Torah and he's like reading it every day. This is a guy who's only trying to expand his borders, his wealth, and his own name. And yet this guy was God's servant because here is a people who are in captivity with no resources, no opportunities, nothing that they can call their own. And this is the guy who frees many of them to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and makes it possible. So here he is being called my servant, my anointed. He is the one who freed people to go back to Jerusalem. And again, another pagan king. Both of these guys were ungodly idol worshipers, murderous, power hungry. And but both of them were permitted by God, permitted by God to crush nations. Pharaoh is also spoken of as the same way as being a servant, being someone that God used. Before God created anything, he knew that mankind would rebel against him. That we would choose our will over his will. Our way over his way. And so he creates this perfect environment. He sets two perfect people in this perfect place. And he goes, now then, this is all the rules there are. Don't eat from that tree. Only one. So I'm giving you one rule and free will. Many of us have experienced that. It's like, here's the keys of the car. One rule, don't wreck it. And we know what happened. One rule. Here's one tree, don't eat from it. And you have free will. And man exercised that free will to exert his rule, his authority, his will, his desires over God's. He knew how he would exercise his free will. God knew it. And so in Revelation 13, 8, it says, he speaks of Jesus as being the lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. He knew. So this all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God loves us enough to permit sin to be used for our good. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5 read like this. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. We are, and not only this, he's talking about sin, he goes, but you know what? We also rejoice even in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance brings about proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So he says here in Romans 5, he goes, look, God's going to use the very stuff that is bad to make you more like him. And then in James 1, he says the same thing. He says in James 1, he says, Consider it all a joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and that endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials. Let me put it like this then. You're going to think, well, 
so what if the trial is not my fault? Let me just think. I can't think of a trial anywhere at all that is not the result of sin somehow or another. So you'd say, well, what about the mudslide and the infant they still haven't found? That's a trial. You're right. And that happened because man's sin set all of creation, even the environment, on a crash course with environment itself and with the people in it. Because that wouldn't have happened if Adam and Eve had not sinned themselves. So we suffer trials because of sin. And here James says, that sin is being used to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When I consider that even before I was born, even before man was created, there was a plan. An unthinkable plan to redeem the created back to the creator. Genesis 3, God says that the the seed of Eve will crush the head of Satan, looking forward to the day when his son would come to earth, born of a woman, and and overcome death and sin as he died for my sins and your sins and then rose from the dead three days later. When I consider that the sin of mankind cannot thwart the plan or the determination of God to love you and I back to himself, and in every condition, in every state, in everything that we could possibly think to do, no matter how horrendous, no matter how bad, no matter how dark it may be, God is actively seeking to love us back to himself. And he will take those very things to woo us to himself and to be a part of his plan. Folks, I cannot fully explain it. I don't fully understand it. How does a God so holy, so easily navigate our sin? It seems so overwhelming to us. And yet it is not to him. He does it. I don't fully understand and I can't explain why my sins were paid for by the innocent son of God. That the nail scars on his hands are mine. That the death that he died became my death. And now the righteousness that he had is also my righteousness because of that. God can't produce sin. God can't promote sin. But he does permit sin. And in doing so, he made the way for the most unthinkable expression, the most glorious event, yet one that is unmatched in its tragic nature, that the innocent son of the creator would pay the, pay the price for the sins of the guilty, of those who rebelled against his father. The son would come and pay for those sins. Those who deserved eternal punishment were, not, was, were offered eternal forgiveness. Sin did not thwart God's plan. Sin didn't stop God from loving us and from using the circumstances of our life. The most painful things we can imagine. God is glorious enough to redeem those things for good. Somehow, somewhere. So this morning, I say this often, but it's true. I know our stories 
Not all of them, by any stretch of the imagination, but enough of them. And I know that some of you are sitting in a circumstance where you're like going, I'm still waiting for that, Tim. What you just preached about is a really nice thought, but I haven't found it to be true in my life yet. I haven't found a purpose for the things that have happened to me. I haven't found a way that this is working out good for anybody at all. So what you're talking about must be incredibly theoretical because it's not true for me yet. You're in that perfect place where these verses are talking about James and Romans. You're in that perfect place where you're sitting there saying, is God really true to the promises he's made? That's what all this boils down to. That's what, that's what happened to Eve when that first time that the serpent whispered in his, her ear, all the way through, whatever you're struggling through in your life today, whatever it is, it comes down to, do you believe God for what he said he was going to do and for who he is? That's what it all boils down to. And so today, if you're in that gap of suffering, unthinkable hurt, and waiting for it to mean something, waiting for it to, to look like it has meaning, that there's some kind of good coming from it. If you're in that gap right there, that place is where you're sitting and you're like going, is God still true? Is what, is what that preacher saying true? Is the character of God one that says that I will redeem, that nothing stops me from making good from every single circumstance? Is that true in my circumstance? Is that true in my sorrow? Is that true in my pain? Is that true in my diagnosis? Is that true? And, and that's a place where this verse is coming true because you have to wrestle with, do I believe God is true? That's where your faith kicks in. And you might do that every day. You might do that every hour for years to come. But there was a day and a time when Joseph understood absolutely, face to face, that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. But there have been those also who were put in that prison cell, who were wrongly accused, who were sold off by brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. Those 12 kids in California right now are like going, is there, is there really anything good going to come from my life, from this situation? There have been those who have died in that prison cell and never knew what God had done. Does that make him any less truthful? Does that make his promise any less true? Did he keep his promise? For God to make a promise to us does not mean that he always tells us how that promise was fulfilled. Is he true even when you don't know how he fulfilled that promise? Do you need to know it to make him true? Do you need to see how he's working out goodness and glory out of your pain and your sorrow? Do you need to know that at such and such a day, the Pharaoh is going to remember that dream that you answered and he's going to pull you out of this? Do you need to know that? Does that make God true if you know it? Well, if that's the way it works, then you don't have faith. You have a certainty that something is going to happen. Faith means you believe in something you haven't seen yet. God is true even when we don't see it. We don't know. To the best of my knowledge, if you know it, let me know. To the best of our knowledge, we don't know how long Joseph was in that prison cell. We don't know how long he served Potiphar. We don't know how long he, he was, I don't know, I can kind of imagine he, he was strapped to a camel and being carted around by Midianites saying, hey, anyone want a good Hebrew boy? He comes cheap. 
We don't know how long it was. But we're led to believe from Scripture that all along the way, he believed God's promise. And that preserved him. Whether he was with the Midianites or Potiphar or prison, he believed God's promise and that preserved him. If you're in that gap between sorrow and fulfillment of promise, knowing who God is, his character, and believing it to be true, that is what you should be clinging to. That while you are sitting in that prison cell, while you are in that gap, God is still true. He is still faithful. Even though it doesn't look like it. Even though it doesn't feel like it. He will still be true and faithful. Even there. Let's pray. Lord, there are many of us that are probably in that gap. Lord, there are many of us who have probably been in that place of wondering what you're doing in the midst of sin. Wondering why things happen the way they do. Wondering how you could let things happen if you're so holy and righteous and sovereign. If you really are in control, if you really all are powerful, then why do things happen the way they do? I confess I don't have the best answer. But in the lack of that answer, there is something I know for certain. That you are faithful. That your promises are true. That you are steadfast. That you have not forgotten us while we're in that gap. While we are still waiting. While we are still working through our sorrow. You are still faithful. May we cling to that truth. And may it produce in us that good and perfect will where we are lacking in nothing. Not that we are lacking in, in possessions. Not that we are lacking in bringing back our dead ones or our estranged ones. But we will not be lacking in the faith that you are true in every circumstance. And that your character has not been diminished and that your purposes have never been thwarted. For that, we give you honor and praise and glory. And in your name we pray. Amen.